Hello, and welcome back to Classical Music Spotlight with an introduction to two operas by James P. Johnson, a name more familiar to jazz buffs, and an interview with Professor Kenneth Kiesler, who leads the University of Michigan Opera Theater and the University of Michigan Symphony Orchestra in the performances you hear today. The music you just heard is the very opening of The Organizer by James P. Johnson with a libretto by Langston Hughes. Here's a bit more. Organizing a union is all right, but damn if I can organize all night. Yes, who is that man? He ought to be here, no. The good Lord knows he ought to be here, no. The good Lord knows, yes, he ought to be here. Can you tell us a bit about James P. Johnson? Because I think jazz buffs might be more familiar with him as a as a jazz musician. James P. Johnson is known to most people because he wrote the Charleston, and the Charleston was a hit. He wrote the Hungry Blues, which happens to be part of the organizer, and that was a separate hit. He wrote a number of other songs that got quite a bit of attention. He was also known as being the favorite pianist of Bessie Smith. People didn't really think of him as a symphonic or an operatic composer, but he wrote a couple of big orchestra works. He wrote uh, these two operas, one of which was premiered in 1940, and the other was only premiered in 2006. Um, most people in, didn't even know he wrote it. In 2006, long after he had departed. That's right. So the organizer, after its premiere in Carnegie Hall at a convention of the Ladies' Garment Workers' Union was lost. And then in 2002, actually just before that, the score was found, a score, I should say, was mm -hmm. found in the University of Michigan in a glass display case. And James DePogny walked by the case and was stunned to see the score, knowing that the piece had been lost. And he's, he's a quite well-regarded and renowned jazz pianist and composer himself and band leader uh, and known for sort of uh, solidifying the legacy of the of Jelly Roll Morton. So mm -hmm. he took a look at this music and found it had only the sung notes, but no piano accompaniment, no orchestra part. In some cases, no transitions between parts of the piece that the chorus would sing. So just the okay. lines for the chorus, that's all. So he went hunting and he went to the grandson, Barry Glover. Barry Glover had some papers and a box. And in that box, he found some manuscripts that gave him an idea about the organizer. But in there, he found for the first time the opera, The Dreamy Kid on a libretto of Eugene O'Neill. And scrawled on the cover, it said, would make a great evening with the organizer, and he put JPJ. So in 2006, the piece having just been discovered, we staged the two of them together, and that led, we did the great evening with the two of them together, and that's why it was only performed then. 
So was it through James DePogny that you came in contact with these pieces? Yes. Jim is a colleague of mine at the University of Michigan. He came to me and he told me the story and he showed me the music that he had. And he said he was reconstructing some parts of it. He had to write 80 bars of music. I think the piece, something like 1400 bars or he, he added 80 bars that he had to write transitions. He had to figure out the orchestration here and there that was incomplete in the manuscripts that he found. And he reconstructed from those manuscripts the orchestra accompaniment for the organizer. And he wrote a few things in Dreamy Kid, but not nearly, uh, but most of Dreamy Kid was there. So that's how I came to them. And we did originally a concert performance only of the organizer in 2002 in Detroit mm -hmm. Orchestra Hall. And then in 2006, we did both of them together and they were fully staged with costumes and sets and so on. That's a lot of work to reconstruct something like that. It is a lot of work. And I, I can tell you very few people could have done it and could have done it as well as Jim did. And he's very humble about it. He said, look, you know, these kinds of jazz chords are common. And once you know the style of James P. Johnson, you can almost anticipate how some of these places are going to sound, you know. And by the way, Jim is heard on the recording. He's the pianist. Because we can't wait. It's getting late. We gotta go. Jericho, Jericho, now I reckon you'll stay. Yes, I'll stay. Get out of my way. Jericho. One. Jericho. Two. Jericho. Johnson also had one was an adapted play, but he was working with some pretty great librettists, Langston Hughes and Eugene O'Neill. In the case of Langston Hughes, we have somebody like James P. Johnson, who was part of the cultural scene in Harlem, part of the Harlem Renaissance. Eugene O'Neill certainly was not, so it was an interesting choice. And it was also an interesting choice. Well, both of them are, because they are political in a way. Both pieces tell a story of the Black experience, though one of the librettists was white. I mean, in Dreamy Kid, prior to the piece starting, a white man has been killed by a Black man. And the Black man is Dreamy the Kid, you know, Dreamy the Kid. Mm -hmm. And he says, Dreamy says, uh, the white men came looking for trouble. And he implies that he killed them, killed one of them in self-defense. At mm -hmm. the end of the opera, he goes off. We hear the police. We know that they're outside the door. And we hear him go out to 
what we suspect, what we know is going to be his own murder by the white police. So this is something that we're still talking about today and still dealing with and addressing today. Then the organizer is about sharecroppers who are forming a union so that they can stand up to the abuses of the sharecropping system uh, was very challenging for them, obviously. So the organizer comes to help them organize a meeting. He's almost like the hero of the story. He's mm -hmm. like the, the mythological, you know, they've been waiting for the savior to come and he's mm -hmm. yeah, the organizer. And at the end, they celebrate. First of all, they spell the word fight and they scream together fight. And then they say, you know, we're celebrating because we've established a union tonight. It's fascinating that it was Langston Hughes that actually wrote the words for, in a way, the more optimistic, mm -hmm. whereas the dreamy kid is actually quite a somber and in incredibly contemporary story. To our times, you mean. Exactly, exactly. That's absolutely true. In The Organizer, what Langston Hughes did, it's optimistic, but he drew the relationship or the comparison or the connection between sharecroppers and slaves, that it was, in a sense, one step removed from slavery, in which it was. It was mm -hmm. the next step after slavery. And how he does that, how James P. Johnson deals with that, is he goes back to use music that slaves would have sung. He's writing music in a style of a spiritual, in the style of a work song. In this, there's some definitely some jazz, there's definitely blues, but there's mm -hmm. also that sense of we're in the field and we're working. In fact, you know, the text is plowing, planting, and hoeing, and the music is very labored and and exhausted. You can feel the heat. You can feel them in the fields. These are, I believe, there's there are they world premier recordings of the, these works? Absolutely, yes. There are no other recordings of them other than the one part of the organizer, the Hungry Blues, which exists on its own. So, what would you like audiences 
to take away from this album. I mean, I think it will have a different resonance for American listeners, but people elsewhere on the globe. You have James P. Johnson writing opera and two very different ones. I described the music of the organizer, the styles that he amalgamated or, or refers to or uses throughout the opera. But in the other one, he's really writing in a style influenced more by Puccini, say, or going mm-hmm. more into the classical direction. So here's G- James P. Johnson from multiple perspectives. You see how gifted, how rich his musical imagination was and his skills to write in one style that we might think of as more classical and another that we might think of more out of the vernacular and more, or more, more popular. That's one thing to take. Look at the giftedness and, and the expanse of skills of James P. Johnson. Uh, and the other is, these are pieces that inspire us to think and mm-hmm. to sort through our own feelings about these issues. And here they are in art at the forefront, just the way they are at the forefront of political and social cultural life and discussion these days. I've got a question. Um, I'm a former French horn player, orchestral musician. And in your opinion, what are the most important attributes a person has to have to be a really good conductor? I always thought maybe clairvoyance was one of them, but (laughs) obviously there's more to it than that. There's so much to it. And, you know, I spend a lot of my time teaching conductors. I do that at the University of Michigan. I was director of Conducting Academy in Paris for eight years, National Arts Center of Canada, and I've taught it all over. And 
What's very interesting about conducting is there's really no agreement about what great conducting is. We know what bad conducting is. Mm-hmm. But what are the attributes? Because actually, when I was a teenager, there was a, time, a New York Times story one Sunday my mother brought to my attention. And it was about conductors, and it listed a host of sort of job titles at the beginning. Conductor is a psychologist. A conductor is a teacher. Um, a conductor is a detective in a way. Conductor is a leader. I suppose the most important attribute we need to have is the ability to form such a persuasive, compelling concept of a work that others are willing, if not eager or even inspired, to go along with us in the process. And without intention, there's no communication. Mm-hmm. So the intention is understanding the music, or in this case, understanding politics, history, culture, religion, theology, bringing what you know from the score and everything else that might apply to it, to the work. And then it's not good enough to know it. There are theorists who know more than than most conductors. There are musicologists who know more. But then the ability to communicate that. And then without communication, we don't really have a relationship with the players, so we can't have collaboration. Without collaboration, we can't really achieve anything. This is sort of the new version of conducting what used to be. The conductor was more dictatorial at one time. So Mm -hmm. it goes from the music to the communication, to the collaboration, to the community, the audience, the the audience of listeners over all time, when in the case of recordings or in the future, or the people in the audience right now. And for a conductor, it's the community in which they live and work and how mm-hmm. they invigorate, how they impact uh, the, commun- the, the arts world and life in that community. worked for extended periods of time in a number of places. You mentioned 
a number of years in Paris or in Ottawa or in Berlin, I know, and of course mm-hmm. in Michigan. That's right. How important is that being a part of a community to the conducting craft? Well, let me start with the music. French music wouldn't be what it is without the French language and the French culture and the French history. And American music, the same, without hymns, without folk music, without jazz, without blues, and so on. So I could go on. The the conductor, the music director of an orchestra, is shaping that orchestra's life in response to the community and in a way to lead and inspire and and bring and connect members of the to create community. So I think it's 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 of ultimate importance, actually. Okay, the music's the most important thing, but it exists on the page without the listener, without the community, without the performer. So it's a community of artists who perform it. It's a community of people who listen. It's a community of people, at least in this country, who support the work, who finance yeah. mm-hmm. it who pay for it. And the reason the composer wrote it to begin with was for the community, for uh, for listeners, not for themselves necessarily. Although there were composers who wrote entirely for their own satisfaction as well, for their own expression. This album was recorded quite a while ago, and it seems like there was a, quite a process to get there. Can you tell me a bit about that? Yeah. First, there was the process to perform it and record the music. And believe me, at the beginning, it was chaotic. At the beginning, Jim was working through things, Jim DePogny. There were parts, orchestra music that we that the orchestra members play from and that were filled with errors and needed to be corrected and there were versions corrected versions and other corrected versions and we did record it in 2006 and here's the release 17 years later i i can summarize that by saying it was quite a long haul and we were dealing with <laughs> all kinds of uh, issues from technical ones to to logistical ones to rights issues so rights and royalties issues you know the the words of 
Langston Hughes are owned and protected by one group, the words of Eugene and Eel another, um, the music another, Hungry Blues is copyrighted separately and so on. Quite frankly, Jim DePogny devoted himself to this and also to many other things. And he was ill and dying and some of the things that might have been done more quickly in terms of the rights issues and so forth that he was dealing with were affected by his health and his mm -hmm. his work at that time. And then after he passed away, it fell to me, actually before he passed away, uh, to take on most of these issues. And then it's taken, and, and other people were involved and very helpful as well. So it's just taken a long time. The piece has a complicated history. It's been complicated to bring it to this point. I had it on my to-do list, I'm not exaggerating, just about every day for 17 years and <laughs> the last few months especially. And I just couldn't be more excited and thrilled that the world is going to hear this wonderful music by James P. Johnson and the words of Eugene O'Neill and Langston Hughes all together. Why you dogs say, who's talking back to me? Take a look at Alabama, man, and you will see. Look at Mississippi, look at Tennessee. Take a look at Dixieland, and you will see. Take a look at me. And me. And me. And me. But I said there'll be no organizing here. I mean, there'll be no organizing here. been listening to music by James P. Johnson and an interview with Kenneth Kiesler, who conducts the combined forces of the University of Michigan Opera Theater and the University of Michigan Symphony Orchestra in these recorded performances of The Organizer and The Dreamy Kid. And special mention to James DePogny, who rescued, reconstructed, and brought back to life these two works. This project would not have been possible without all of his work. Both pieces are on one album, catalog number 8.669041, part of Naxos's American Opera Classics series. That's all for this podcast. My great thanks to Maestro Kiesler for taking the time to chat, and to you for taking the time to listen. To go out, here's the very end of The Organizer. I'm Raymond Bechet. So long for now. Walt is be sure and get it right. Tell him we organize a union here tonight. Yes, we 